what is it that makes you anxious? What is it that you worry about? Something popping in your head right away? Early in 2007, I met with a financial advisor to discuss the financial plan for our retirement years. I remember telling him that we hadn't done a lot of preparation, but that our home was the foundation of our plan. We lived right outside Washington, D.C. Our home, uh, the value of our home had, had um, increased significantly in the six years that we lived there. And, and I said, that really is our nest egg. Our nest egg for retirement is in real estate. It's in our house. That's our plan. A year later, God called us to a church in Ohio, and we put our house on the market. It was early in the summer of 2008. Thank you for those groans. Um, we listed our house at a price that made sense based on the market when it first went up. It was less than it would have sold for in 2007, but it was still, uh, we were going to be in a, in, in a good place to be able to buy in Ohio and to, to move on. A few weeks went by and we had virtually no traffic at all, let alone any offers. Talked to the real estate agent, the real estate agent said, eh, I think you should probably lower the price. And we did. And there was still no traffic. About a month went by and the real estate agent said, I think you need to lower your price because the market is, it's just in this tailspin. And at that point, we began to have this sense of, you know what, what was our nest egg, we were going to do well to just come out breaking even in that house. All of our dreams, all of our hopes that were there were gone. I remember talking with a real estate agent from Ohio in November of that year and asking the agent, okay, at what price realistically can we sell the house? At what price can we put it at that someone will come in and say, that's a great deal and we're going to buy the house? She said, I remember so well, she said, I can't guarantee you anything, but the amount that she quoted would have meant that we would have to have brought about $100,000 to the table for closing money, obviously, that we didn't have. We were in the eye of the hurricane of the housing crash in Washington, D.C. We were at ground zero of the land of bad loans. Deb and I, our four children and our dog, were living with a friend in Ohio, determined not to have two house payments, and believing in faith that God would provide for us on a Midwest salary with an East Coast mortgage that was upside down. It was another five months before we were able to land a renter and finally find a place to live as a family in Ohio. Starting a new job while living in someone else's home with all of our possessions in storage and severely upside down on our mortgage. It was an incredibly stressful time. What makes you anxious? What is it that you worry about? Jesus leads into this section of the Sermon on the Mount that we're going to take a look at in today's message with the word, therefore, or some translations say, for this reason. If you've got your Bibles, take them out. Take a, a pew Bible. If you've got the app out, uh, go ahead and open it up to the message. 
We're going to start in Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. Jesus says, therefore, and what's therefore is because Jesus has just talked immediately before about the passage of Scripture Chris preached from last week. Don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart is going to be. Nobody can serve two masters. You can't serve both God and money. Jesus has just said all of that, and he says, therefore... I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, about what you'll eat or what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. Is life not more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, but I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive, tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, don't be anxious. Don't be anxious, saying, what shall we wear, or what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, don't be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Jesus says... Don't be anxious. Don't be anxious about your life. Don't be anxious about your food. Don't be anxious about your clothes. Don't be anxious about what you'll drink. And yet, we are anxious. Early this week, I put a post on Facebook and asked, what is it that you're nervous about? What is it that concerns you? I got a, a, a wide variety of responses. Let me share them with you. Germs, spiders, snakes, going to the dentist, public speaking, driving in winter in Michigan. A friend of mine from high school said uh, going on a date, recently divorced. Uh, a friend from Missouri said tornado warnings. They live in Joplin. Uh, a number of people said health issues for, for ourselves, for people that we love, world events, political issues, work stuff, starting a job, losing a job, starting a new business, debt, finances, the unknown. A number of people talked about worrying about their kids and their future, about their relationship with their kids. People talked about safety, about taking risks. People said that they worried about what other people think, about whether or not they're enough for other people, about whether they upset people, about whether they look foolish or whether they disappoint people. People worry about relational conflict, about getting old and dying, about relapsing back into addiction, about being abandoned or alone that no one cares, about being vulnerable and being betrayed about causing someone to turn away from God, about hidden things in their life becoming public, about the minister not 
naming their thing that they're nervous about. They were nervous about that. And, the, and probably the most important was people said that they were nervous about pastors who cheer for Ohio State. Um, I, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. Understand that as Jesus talked on the hillside, on the Sea of Galilee, his audience didn't have a lot of material possessions. They didn't have a closet full of clothes. They didn't have a refrigerator or a freezer that was stocked with food. They didn't have the ability to go to the sink and turn on water and have it there available for them. They didn't have much. And Jesus said, don't be anxious about your food or about your clothes, about what you'll drink. As our wealth and comfort has grown, so has our fear and anxiety. The more we have, the more we can lose. The more our identity is tied to the stuff or the people around us, the more anxious we get when that stuff or those people are no longer there. But none of that is under our control. What's the common thread, the common theme in all of those things that make us nervous, in all of our anxieties? I, I was, this week as I worked through it, as I looked at that list and just talked to people, why is it that we worry so much? I think, I think that at its core, it's this. We worry about things that we can't control. Stuff that's out of our control causes this sense of anxiety in us, this churn, this desire for power over our circumstances. The question that's there for us is, why do we think that we're even supposed to be in control? Right? If we're followers of Jesus, aren't we supposed to trust God for everything? So the question for us, one of the core questions today is, who do you trust? Who do you trust for your stuff, for your life, for your relationships? For many of us, we say that we trust God, but we live as though we only trust ourselves. That issue of worry and anxiety is all about trust. What, what exactly is anxiety? I, we all kind of know what it is, but what are we talking about today? It's that uneasy feeling of uncertainty, of agitation, of being pulled apart, of dread, of fear. It's that fear of not being able to control something. The word in the original Greek language that Jesus uses here means to be perpetually uneasy or distracted, to be pulled apart. The medical profession says that anxiety or chronic worrying can affect our daily life so much that it can interfere with our appetite, with our lifestyle habits, with our relationships, with our sleep patterns, with our job performance. Many people who worry excessively are so, are so encumbered by anxiety that they seek relief in harmful lifestyle habits like overeating, cigarette smoking, using alcohol or drugs to escape. Anxiety impacts our physical bodies, right? It, it affects our central nervous system, our immune system, our respiratory system, our cardiovascular system, our digestive and excretory system. Pause for just a second and let me just say this. Not all anxiety is bad. God made our bodies to respond to danger in ways that, um, that were necessary. But when we live in anxiety all of the time, 
And that danger is something that we embrace and we cultivate and we hold on to because we believe that we've got to be in control of our circumstances. That's not how God designed our bodies to function. I'm talking about the negative impact of anxiety on our lives. Uh, The preacher Charles Stanley says anxiety impacts us in six different kinds of ways. It divides our mind. So it... It diverts your attention. It creates this distraction when we're anxious. It slows down our productivity. At work, we can't do what we thought we would. At home, we can't do what we thought we would because we're just consumed by, by worry. It affects our relationship with other people, our relationships with our spouse, with our kids. When anxiety is gnawing at us, it erodes that. It leads to unwise decisions because when we're anxious and not sleeping, we're not thinking clear. And so we make stupid decisions. It steals our joy and peace. It wastes our time and energy. Anxiety, do you understand that anxiety starts in our heart? That's why it's a part of the series. That's why we're talking about this whole heart attack thing. Anxiety starts in our heart, but it really comes from three different kinds of sources. Anxiety comes from when we, when there, we want something and we don't get it, not getting what we want. We think, you know what, I want so badly to be married, and there are no prospects. I so badly want this job or this house or this thing, and I can't get it because I don't have the resources. And, And that anxiety churns because there's something that we want that we can't have. Sometimes our anxiety comes from getting what we want and then losing it. You know, we buy the car. We buy the car, and we've got it. We have the sense of huge fulfillment. And it's not long at all before we realize, you know what, it's not that great. Or maybe the car gets repossessed and taken from us because we can't afford it. We get married and think, boy, when I get married, that's the answer to all my problems. And you wake up one day and realize this is not what I anticipated at all. Or worse, you wake up and the marriage is done completely and you're divorced. Getting what you want and losing it. And sometimes getting what you don't want and being stuck there. You go to the doctor and the doctor says, you've got cancer. You've got cancer. Can't change that. Nothing, nothing in that will change. Sometimes we get, we get what we don't want and we get stuck there. Maybe we get sued. Maybe we have all of our hopes and dreams and having a child and miscarry. Nothing can change it. Sometimes it can be that our, our kids reject Jesus or they live in a way that we think is, is not wise and we can't do anything about it. Is anxiety that big of a deal? Go to any drugstore or chiropractor or gym or grocery and you'll get your answer. There are pills to calm your nerves, pills to make you sleep, Alcohol to take the edge off, deep tissue massage to relieve stress, essential oils and herbs and supplements, yoga classes to help you find inner peace. Is anxiety a big deal? Jesus thought so. Because those worries, those fears, that perpetual distraction reveals our deepest longing inside us. Our anxiety highlights the desperate fears 
that are in our hearts. So what's Jesus say? He says first, don't be anxious because God believes you are incredibly valuable. God believes you are incredibly valuable. God takes care of things that are far less important than you. Verse 26, he says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Verse 28, why are you anxious about clothing? Look, look at the lilies of the field. They neither toil nor spin. But I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Solomon was, was the richest man alive. The Old Testament tells us that every year Solomon's kingdom received gifts and, and um, uh, donations from the countries they had conquered. 25 tons of gold every year. Solomon had it all. Jesus says even Solomon in all of his glory wasn't, wasn't dressed like the, the lilies of the field. If God clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive, tomorrow ends up getting burnt up, will he not also clothe you, you of little faith? God provides for the, words, for the birds even though the birds fly around like crazy, right? God is the one who provides for them. They're out there getting what God has provided. Have you ever seen a nervous, worried bird? Only in angry birds, right? That's the only place. God believes you are incredibly valuable. Hear that. Wrap your brain around it. God believes you are incredibly valuable. And he knows what you need. Verse 31, Therefore don't be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them all. God knows what you need. We miss the power of what Jesus said to the crowd on that hillside by the Sea of Galilee because we don't get the cultural context of that moment. The Jews were God's chosen people. God had made a promise to the Jewish nation. He had made a pact with them and no one else that they would be his people and he would be their God. He would bless them. He would protect them. He would provide for them like no one else. The Jews were not like the Romans. They were not like the Greeks. They were not like the Egyptians or the Canaanites or the Babylonians or the Syrians or the Persians. They were special. They had a special relationship with the God of the universe, the God who had created all of the world and mankind. They had a special relationship with him because they were Jewish. And Jesus said, why are you worried about food and clothes and drink? That's what the Gentiles, the non-Jews do. That's what they're concerned about, what they focus on. Your heavenly Father, the one you call Jehovah Jireh, the one who provides, he knows what you need. He's going to take care of you. Do you believe that God knows what you need today? Do you believe that God knows what you need? When, when the United States was founded, the, many of the founding fathers were deists. The deists believed that God created the world, but then he went to the sidelines and watched from the stands as his creation played out history. He was creator God, but not involved. They could not have been more wrong. 
as Francis Schaeffer said, God is there and he is not silent. He's actively engaged in every aspect of our lives. He knows when we wake up and when we go to sleep. He knows when we fight with our spouse or our kids. He knows the condition of our bank account. He knows what's going on inside our bodies before the doctors or the MRI or the CT scan. God knows the birds need food, that they need nests. He knows that the lilies need sun and rain and soil and bees. God knows what you need. And he's promised to provide it. He's promised to provide what you need. Verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. If God believes that you're valuable, and he does, and he knows what you need, and he does, he is going to take care of you. You have to pursue him. You have to follow his agenda. You have to live like his child and be in that relationship. And he will provide everything that you need. Recognize that there's a difference between what we want and what we need, right? We want to win the March Madness bracket tournament at work, right? But that's not really a need. We want a new car, right? I don't know that that's a need. We want a better job. We want more money in our account. We want to be better prepared for retirement. But I don't know that those are needs. Why are mission trips to third world countries so life-changing for people? I, I can tell, just speak from my own experience because when you go in a place where there is so little and meet people who are content with what they have, who are living for Jesus in that context without all of the stuff, and you come back and you see all the things that you have, you recognize that there's a huge difference between what we need and what we want. We can survive, we can live with so much less than we have. We're doing a trip to Dominican Republic this summer, and let me just take a second to say, if you're in high school, if you're an adult, and you've never been on a mission trip like that in a third world country, man, sign up for it. Go. We can take 30 people. God will turn your world upside down because of that whole want and need issue. Now, you may be saying, wait a second, you've said that God has promised that he's going to provide, that he's going to take care of those needs for everybody. What about Christians in third world countries? What about Christians in refugee camps? What about Christians who are caught in generational poverty? Um, it doesn't seem like God is taking care of them very well at all. I'm not going to deal with that question today, although that's a great question and I would love to talk about it. It doesn't fit in today's message, but let me say this. I think what you'll find is that followers of Jesus in those circumstances will say more than we will. You know what? God provides for me every day in miraculous ways. God cares for me only question is, do I believe it? The answer to that is with whether or not we worry. It's the examine that determines the answer to that question. Because Jesus says this at the end of that passage, your worry doesn't change anything. Your worry doesn't change anything. It's a waste of time. God believes you're incredibly valuable. He knows what you need. God has promised he'll provide what you need. 
And he says, therefore, because of that, don't be anxious about tomorrow. Tomorrow can be anxious for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. The Huffington Post uh, wrote an article in 2015 that described a study that was done on worry. They had a, a large group of people that they asked questions, asked them to write down things that they worried about. They came back to them months or years later and asked, okay, those things that you wrote down that you worried about, um, how many of those things actually happened? Interestingly enough, 85% of the things that people said that they were worried about never even happened. 85%. Of the 15% that did happen, 79% of the people discovered that they could either handle the difficulty better than they expected or that they learned lessons through that experience that, that were good, that they taught them great lessons. So 97% of the things that we worry about are a waste of energy. And the 3% that do happen, that are an issue, we don't have any control over anyway. So why worry? Worry doesn't change anything. Herbert Lockyer said, worry produces doubt in three areas. God's love is doubted, God's power, or God's wisdom is doubted, and God's power is doubted when we worry. Because the root of worry is the sin of unbelief. Corey Ten Boom said, Worry doesn't empty tomorrow of its sorrow, it empties today of its strength. Worry is the opposite of having faith. It's not trusting God. When you think about it, worry at its core is living as though God doesn't exist, that he will not interact in our lives. So how do you combat that? What's the, what's the, what's the antidote for that? How do you deal with worry? It's by being content. The cure for worry is contentment in Christ. It's finding your contentment in Jesus. It's trusting in his love and provision for every aspect of your life. The historian Plutarch tells the story of Alexander the Great and the Greek philosopher Diosthenes, or Diogenes. Alexander the Great came to visit Diogenes, who was outside laying in the sun getting a tan. And he asked him, Diogenes, what would you like? I'll give you anything. And Alexander had the power to do that. Diogenes looked up, turned his head, responded to Alexander and said, could you move to the side a little bit? You're blocking my son. Can you imagine Warren Buffett or Bill Gates or Donald Trump coming into church today, sitting down beside you and asking after the message, what would you like? What do you need? You say the word and it's yours. And you have the courage, the faith, the trust in God to say, you know, I don't really need anything. God has it all under control. He's providing for me. The cure for worry, the prescription for anxiety, is contentment. Let me, let me pause just for a second to recognize that we live in a broken world. Some people's bodies are not working in the way that God designed, and their anxiety, their anxiety stems from a chemical makeup that's broken 
And they need meds to help fix that. In the same way a person with a broken arm needs a cast to help that arm heal. I get that. God gets that. For some of us, though, our anxiety stems from hidden sin. If that's the case, you don't need meds. You need to repent and come clean. You need to be in healthy relationships where God can help, he, de- help you deal with your past and that sin. For most of us, anxiety is a faith battle. Do we trust ourselves or do we trust God? Do we trust alcohol or do we trust God? Do we trust our doctor or do we trust God? Jesus said to seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. The apostle Paul gave a prescription in Philippians 4 that was equally as specific. The cure for anxiety is contentment. Paul says in a few verses after this passage, he says, I've learned to be content in every circumstance. Whether I've had a lot or a little, God has allowed me to learn to be content. But he says this in Philippians chapter 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Don't be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever's true, whatever's noble, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's admirable, if there's anything excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Paul says, if you want to learn to be content, three things. Find joy right where you are. Rejoice no matter what's going on around you. Let that joy come from your relationship with your Heavenly Father. And then pray with thanksgiving. Those things that are concerns, take them. Give those petitions, those requests to God with a spirit of thanksgiving. How can you be thankful when, you know, when you've been diagnosed with cancer? How can you be thankful when, you're, when your kids are in a place that you don't want? How can you be thankful when, when, when your finances are in a mess? You can be thankful because you recognize that God has all of those things in his hand. We can be thankful because we realize that we have a relationship with him that allows us to to see that all of those things are temporary and that God will move. Last thing Paul says is control your thoughts. Whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's lovely, whatever's pure, anything excellent, worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. If you struggle with anxiety, if you worry, the best thing you can do is take Philippians 4, 8 and, and just kind of tick down through and say, okay, that thing that I'm worrying about, is that true? Do I know that to be true? Well, no, it's something that's out in the future that might happen. So it's not true. No, it's not true. Okay, I don't need to think about that. I'm going to think about what's true. What do I know that's true? I know that God sees me as valuable. I know that God knows my needs. I know that God's promised that he's going to provide for my needs. This thing I'm worrying about, is it right? Is it lovely? Is it excellent or praiseworthy? If not, that's not where I'm going to focus my mind. Use that as a filter, as a grid with which to weigh those anxieties and those fears. 
the renters that we got on our house in Virginia in the spring of 2009 stayed about two years. We had new renters that came in late in, in uh, 2011 and, uh, and began to rent the house. It was, it was great during all that time. We had money coming in that was just enough to take care of those bills for that house. And in June of 2012, the 1st of June came and there was no rent check. And I thought, that's really weird. And five days passed, and there was no rent check. I uh, sent an email, didn't get a response, made a phone call, didn't get any kind of response. And the month of June moved forward with no money coming in. First of July came, and there was no rent check. I began to really do some detective work in the, about the middle of the month, and I discovered that the people who were renting our house who still had three or four months left on their lease had left our house. They had vacated the premises and had bought a house someplace else and hadn't told us. They had skipped on the lease. And I discovered that as the owner, because they had a lease, I couldn't even get into the property to rent it again because they had a lease. Took some time. I ended up being able to get them to sign the the document that allowed us back into the house. And um, the first week of August, we took all of our family and made the trip from Ohio to Virginia to clean the house so that we could get it back on the market because we couldn't afford to have it sit empty. When we got there that Thursday night, I remember so well, the, the, the house was trashed. There was, there was trash inside the house. There was trash outside the house. They had been out of the house uh, for almost two months at that point in time. While we were going through the house that night, Deb is standing out in the driveway, and, and the lot that our house was on was a house that had, or the lot had tons and tons of trees. And while we're standing there, I hear Deb kind of shriek from the driveway, and she said, I just got bit by a snake. And um, she had indeed been bit by a copperhead. Um, so we called the squad, and we made the trip to the emergency room to deal with a snake bite. We learned a couple of things. Well, the first thing that we learned was that the antidote for a copperhead bite cost $100,000. They didn't bring the antidote right away because they had to call an armed guard to transport it because of its value. The second thing that we learned was that copperheads and some other snakes oftentimes will bite with a warning bite and not release any venom. And that's what had happened with Deb. She had fang marks in her skin, broken through the skin, but the, the snake had not released any venom into her body. I remember going back to the hotel that night. We spent, you know, three, four hours, whatever, in the ER going through that process. We hadn't listed the house yet because, uh, because there were just too many unknowns. We didn't know what kind of shape it was in. And I, and I wrote an ad and put it on Craigslist and thought, God, you know, who knows? Um, We've got to get somebody in the house, but I don't know that we're even going to be able to get the thing cleaned up. Friends came that we had that were in the area. We worked all day Friday. And um, Saturday morning, I got up, and there was an email message from a couple who lived in the area that said, we're interested in your house. Can we come see it today? We worked like crazy Saturday, and Saturday afternoon, they came. And the short version of the story is that after church on Sunday, we met them. They left us a deposit. They signed the lease. Um, and, and our rent money started to come back in in a way that was only, only explainable because of God. Um, 
from a human standpoint, we thought that there was no way that we'd have a renter for several months. We thought the possibility of losing that house was very real. We were not filled with hope or contentment. But that's because our focus was on us and not on God. Did God have that couple ready to go for our house before we ever made the trip? He did. Did God know when that snake bit Deb that it wasn't going to release venom into her leg? He did. Did, had God freed up the schedules of, of uh, a number of our friends to come and help us clean the house and have it be ready to be uh, t- turned over to the, the new renters? He did. God cares for us. He believes that you are incredibly valuable. He knows exactly what you need. God wants to provide everything that you need Your worry doesn't change anything. The challenge for us today is to give up, give up control and trust him. The cure for anxiety is contentment in Christ. God cares about your heart. He doesn't want you to worry. He doesn't want you to live paralyzed by anxiety. He doesn't want you to live in fear of what might happen. He wants you to live a life of trust and contentment. If you think about a small child, it's, it's such a picture of what we're talking about today. A small child doesn't worry about anything because their parents are looking out for them. They're providing for them. They're protecting them. They're, they're doing everything that that child needs. Their trust in their parents is absolute. That's what God wants for us. Whether you're 15, 25, or 50, or 75, hear the words of Jesus. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. Come to me, all you who worry and whose lives are filled with anxiety, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Let's pray. God, your tenderness with us is incredible. God, we we recognize right now that we worry about stuff that doesn't matter. God, we get spun up and anxious about stuff that we can't control. God, we recognize that we think that we've got to be in control and we miss that you really are. Help us, God. Help, help our faith grow. Help our trust in you grow. God, deepen our relationship with you because you have proven over and over and over again that you are our provider, that you do know our needs, that you take care of them, and you have proven in Jesus, especially God, how valuable we are. Help us, God. Help us depend on you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.